Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today I want to read this off because I, I, I can't remember it all. I'm, uh, it's a pleasure to have with us comedian, MSNBC contributor, uh, and uh, host of a podcast, How to Citizen, which we'll ask you about. And he's also host of a new six-part series, America Outdoors, with Baratunde Thurston on PBS. He's also a best-selling author of How to Be Black. And uh, it's a pleasure to have him with us. Uh, Baratunde, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Brian, thanks for having me. Good to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun, so stick around. We'll be right back after these important messages, which, you know, pay the bills. <laughs> we'll be right back. Hi, and welcome back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me today is Baratuni Thurston. Uh, and we've, we've made the honorifics in the introduction. So uh, in honor of the fact that the title of this show is Just Ask the Question, I'm just going to ask you the question. How do you deal with racists, Baratuni? Do you en encourage them, engage them, ignore them? What do you do to I definitely don't encourage them. That should not be... <laughs> a list like you got to redesign your multiple choice. i'm telling you that's multiple choice how do you deal with racist encourage them provoke <laughs> them further give them kudos or avoid them what are these <laughs> how do you deal with them do you engage them or or how do you how it's uh someone showing up as racist doesn't always look the same so Dealing with a racist may not be an obvious moment for a lot of people's lives. Uh, dealing with someone who's behaving in a racist way, which is certainly more common, um, has all kinds of different paths how I deal with it. When I deal with someone who I think is exhibiting racist tendencies, uh, leaning into the racism a little bit, uh, partly I check and see, like, what, what is my energy level? Right? There are times when I don't have the energy to go full frontal and make a huge situation out of this. I'm just trying to get lunch, you know? Right. Um, and, and you don't need I'm to just, go full frontal at lunch. Yeah, I'm just trying to get off the bus or get on the plane or whatever the case may be. And so in that case, I file it into my secret list of grievances and I make an Arya Stark-like Game of Thrones list and I just add their name to it. And uh, come back to that later in life. There, there are times when... Uh, I choose to ask them, you give them a moment to clarify. Hey, I don't know if you realize this, but that came across as very insensitive or uninformed or racist. Can you tell me what were you thinking? What were your intentions when you said that? Did you just repeat that. It gives basically a little wiggle room, offer a little yeah. wiggle room, a chance for some grace. Um, and there have been times out of self-preservation when you just keep it moving. You know, there's no one size fits all when, you know, it feels like a tense situation. If there's any kind of uh, physicality or group kind of dynamic, that's just not the moment to, in, in that sense, be confrontational. And self-preservation is, is pretty key. And I think everything I described there is what people have done throughout history. You know, there's, right. there's times where you just draw a line in the sand and say, no, 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 that is unacceptable. Well, the, one of the um, reasons talk why, about that. Yeah. One of the reasons why I asked that, I have a good friend of mine, Daryl Davis, who's uh, I know uh, Daryl. Yeah, who's he, he, great guy. Uh, and I mean, he, and he is he is a re, a social justice extremist. That's how I think of Daryl. <laughs> this is the brother that that like DS he like uh deprograms clan leaders, right? He's got 200, I think, robes from clan. And he collects the robes. Collects the kind of clan collector creep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, and he's even gone to clan rallies. There's pictures. Yeah. 
And and if you don't know Daryl, and and I bring him up often when we discuss this issue because I he he just it, I mean he encourages me to engage with people I normally would not talk to, but uh, he's a large African American. I mean he's a big guy. Mm-hmm. He's, he's I think he's six seven, and he's he's a but what he's really known for in our area is he uh, he plays uh, in in rock bands. Hell, he played with Chuck Berry. He's a, a keyboardist. But uh, one day while playing at a honky tonk, he had a, a, a white guy come up to him and say, golly, gee, you play like, you know, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. And he was going, well, you know, Jerry Lee actually learned it from, you know, from, <laughs> from someone who had a face of color. And the guy turned out to be a Klan member. And he said, he sat down with a guy and said, look, how do you hate me if you don't know me? Mm-hmm. So he took the time to engage someone that, and not encouraging, and he encouraged them to to talk about why they were racist. And then he, he, he managed to deprogram the guy. Um, and it was the first robe he collected, but I often wonder if in our, in our zeal to, to conquer a problem, if, um, if ignoring those who are that way will help solve the problem. And I think Daryl's found a way around it, but that's why I ask. Yeah, no, I, I remember when I first came across Daryl, um, I've only met him once. We did a panel, a virtual panel together almost exactly a year ago. Uh, you know, Derek Chauvin slowly killed George Floyd and a lot of people woke up to facts that have been available for centuries. And Daryl and I found ourselves in the same conversation with a bunch of people new to the conversation. And so it was an exciting opportunity. And we were there with two other uh, people and we all had, we were all doing some kind of anti-racist work in different ways. And so I describe lovingly Daryl as an extremist. He's like the extreme sports of anti-racism <laughs> because he like dives headfirst into the MMA fighting pits. And that's not for everybody. <laughs> no, it's not. And I think, you know, confronting a racist and taking the amount of time he does and exposing himself psychologically to that a burden is uh is is so unique it is powerful work it is not work that i do i'm not in that way i'm inviting i'm casual i'm comfortable but i don't seek out clan members to change them um, i don't seek them out either <laughs> I, think there, I do think that uh you know in the, in the way you set it up in terms of how we make progress i think somebody needs to talk to them right uh, if i were like the coach of the whole team I would put in players who they're familiar with. Uh, I would put that work on their family members, on their coworkers, their colleagues, their fellow parishioners, uh, on on their coaches and their children, people who are already kind of in that circle of trust in so many ways. And I would lean on people who have already left the clan, like any cult, right? Uh, and uh, or any gang member. You know, you you get former gang members to talk to existing gang members. You get former terrorists to talk to existing terrorist cell members, you get former cult people to talk to people still in the cult because they know the language, they know the buttons, they know the code words in the playbook. And fortunately, uh, I don't, I'm not that, that intimately familiar with all the playbook and my energy I think is better spent, but I, someone needs to do it. So I'm glad Daryl's doing it. And for those who are looking for a position to play in this sport, talk to your, talk to your closest Nazi, you know, they're closer <laughs> than you think. <laughs> And yeah, I have a next door neighbor that qualifies. Um, but, but back to a point that you made, and I approached this through, there were two avenues or three avenues when I was a child that brought me uh, to the awareness of, of, of racial problems. One was my uh, grandfather who was uh, marched with Dr. Martin Luther King and was, um, you know, he suffered some of the ills of racism by being uh, Lebanese and whom, <laughs> and us growing up in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, so that was, he was introduced to that and introduced me to that. I, I was introduced to the problems via Playboy magazine when I read the uh, uh, Playboy interview with Martin Luther King. But there was a third route and I'll, I'll lay it on where you've also done some work and that's in comedy. I remember Richard Pryor did a bit about um, talking about police officers. And he said, you know, white people know police officers differently. It's like 
hi, Officer Timkins, let's go bowling. He, mm -hmm. he said, you know, we know him differently because it's like, I am reaching for my license. Do not shoot my ass. Yeah. And that was 50 years ago. And so when people say they were surprised with the with Derek Chauvin, I just go, where have you been? Where, where, where the hell have you been? It's been an ongoing problem since I've been on the planet and God knows before. Do, do, you, do you use, do you find comedy helps people become aware of the problem? Do you use it? I definitely use it and it's helpful to de-escalate uh, before the escalation. And so yeah. de-escalation, de so you soften, you soften the target. Then you strike. <laughs> Very spoken like a true comedian. <laughs> yeah, boxing slash militaristic about it. Um, and so the the reason that people don't know is because there is a, a very massive um, emotional and business model that's been in place to keep people from knowing. If you watched Fox News on the, the day and the evening of the Chauvin verdict and you watched anything else that wasn't, you know, you watch Fox News Max or One America and then you watch anything else that's actually news, you would see a different story. And there are yeah. many people who only watch from those outlets. And so what they're getting is a grievance oriented, uh, a white grievance grounded propaganda that just focused on protests that weren't even happening. You know, there were people celebrating. There were people crying in the street. There were people marching in solidarity with a sense of relief, if anything, not really celebration. But they couldn't talk about that. And the other thing they would talk about is, uh, you know, Joe Biden wants to make you hate America and they want to educate our kids to hate everything. And so if 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 your sources of information aren't telling you what's going on, how are you going to know what's going on? Right. You've got to have somebody got to silo. If you're right. somebody's got to break through. And so yeah. Richard Pryor is a great example of someone who broke through and was able to slice through the consciousness and through the, the brainwashing of a lot of white America and a lot of America in general around oh policing isn't just good guys trying to catch bad guys. Police right. can be bad guys too, because they're yeah. human. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> That's deep. <laughs> yeah, man, it's blowing my mind. Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> it does. It does. But you know, again, we, when people have an incentive to not know, it's easier to stay ignorant. But I will say, and and what you said about Richard Pryor, and 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 I was going to save some of that for the the third block because it's always fun to talk comedy. <laughs> um, but I always found that he was he broke down barriers that um and I, I it was his characterization it's the way he carried himself it's it's everything that he did confession my favorite comedian that i've ever seen live that's um, not a sin. you don't have to confess that yeah that's i mean I, you know it's my bias <laughs> i think are for things you're not proud of you know? yeah well uh, there was that one no <laughs> it was high school it was late we don't have to i'm not a police we can keep it moving keep it moving <laughs> but uh, I have often found that comedy was uh, was something that that helped, and it was Richard Pryor that, that helped sell that idea to me. Do you yeah. find that you can you, that uh, I mean, going back to that episode, have you used it yourself? Do you are you consciously aware of that? Oh yeah, yeah, I I am aware of my own strength, um, and so I use it consciously. And I've done a lot of talks, uh, especially in the past year, but throughout most of my adult life to schools and to companies on themes of tech and justice and race, uh, and especially race lately. And I don't start off with slavery, you know? I, <laughs> that's not my opener, right? Yeah, that's kind of a downer to open up yeah, with. Yeah, you don't open, I mean, unlike the United States of America, I don't start with slavery, right? Yeah. So oh. there's, Hey now. <laughs> now I've I've killed two birds with one stone. Oh, I'm telling you, that was a tough room, man. <laughs> so yeah, I just I start by trying to relate to the audience and connect and see who's there and pay whether it's a virtual room or a physical room. There's ways to do that, and I, I wish politicians did that more often. But the, good, the good ones do. Yeah, the good, ones, good do. ones do. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit. I I did want to talk a little bit about your PBS uh, six part series. Tell oh me yeah, a bit about that. 
Yeah, so that that show's not airing for a while. It feels so distant in the future because everything you know, we want to shot it yet. Only one of the episodes. Uh, so I'm in production right now, uh, shipping out every few weeks to a different location. But the show was called America Outdoors with Baritone Day Thurston. It's brought to you by you. Uh, it's a public broadcasting show. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, yeah. Whoever you are listening to this, you're a producer uh, on the show. You're a favorite <laughs> of the show. This is your show. You own it. And we are exploring uh, Americans and their relationships with the outdoors. And it's, I think, a really different and broader take on what constitutes the outdoors and who is American that we're featuring. Uh, so it's it's city outdoor stuff and super rural. It's mountainous and it's valleys. It's the coasts and, and the middles. Um, and it's all kinds of folks, indigenous people and white people and Latinx people and black people. And every kind of American is going to be uh, see themselves in this show. So I'm we've taped just one It is exhausting and exciting. And as someone who grew up as a, a Boy Scout, uh, who did a lot of camping and yeah, hiking, whose mother was a member of the Sierra Club. Uh, I oh, you met my mom. Yeah, I'm excited <laughs> to return to, you know, I've been in on the we so many of us are in these like screen based lives. And uh, especially with COVID, like school and church and happy hour and everything is through the screen. So it's just really nice to to like leave my house and to remember that there's other spaces that we can be in and other ways we can connect to each other. Yeah. Drop acid in nature. No, I'm sorry. I was confessing something there. Anyway, yeah, um, I'm not a priest, but you keep pressing. Uh, <laughs> uh, I also want to talk a little bit about how to be black. Mm. Tell um, me, I, I, I have just, I picked it up uh, before we, we started and I haven't gotten through it, but it, it, uh, how, how to be black is a great title. How yeah. do and, and tell me what your point was, what you think you the best part of the book was the theme the best part of the book uh i don't know what the best part of the book is i think it's probably my conversations with other people is the best part of the book uh it's a memoir that i published in 2012 so nine years ago i was 34 years old perfect time to write a memoir <laughs> Because yes, I figured it all out. At any moment. <laughs> yeah, I figured it out, and I was like, I need to write this down. Everybody needs to know my wisdom. So I, I pulled a Frederick Douglass, and I wrote a youthful memoir, and it was me exploring this question of uh, what does it mean to be black? Who gets to decide? Uh, the answer is I do. There is no one way to be black, and there were there were people who I knew who were telling me I was way too black for the situation. Oh, you showing up with all this ethnicity and you, your your name is Nigerian and you talk about race. Why are you so black? And there's other people who are like, you're not black enough. You're educated and you speak in a certain way and you're into things that black people aren't supposed to be into. So it's a stupid game that other people have put many others through. And I wanted to write something about self-determination, self-definition. So I chose a comedic memoir as a way to do that. One of the things I picked up from the little bit of it that I've read is something it related back to what my grandfather told me when I was mm -hmm. a kid. And while everyone was uh, calling themselves, and, and there's many different ways to be whatever ethnicity you are, I suppose. Yeah, but my, my grandfather said, look, I am not an Arab American. I am an American. I chose to come here. I, that's who I am. Mm -hmm. And embrace who you are you know, this is him giving, you know, me six years old advice, embrace who you are and who you came from, but never be afraid to be who you want to be. And I, I, I picked that up from just, it, I, I, I picked that up just from the few pages that I've read of your book. It reminded me of what my, it was similar advice, or at least I got from it, similar advice from what my grandfather uh, gave me. And it was never be afraid to be who you are. Um, yeah. And, well, that's and, way shorter than a book. Um, maybe yeah. I could have seen a lot of time. <laughs> but it wouldn't have been as fun. The there journey you go. <laughs> yeah, you got to stretch it out to add some fun in there. <laughs> so how do you citizen? Oh, boy. Um, you start by acknowledging that the way we use this word in the U.S., it has some 
technical utility, right? Citizen as its legal status. I get that there's, there's important reasons to have that, but it's very limiting in ways that don't help us, that don't serve us. And so, so I think that we have grown to use this word as a weapon, uh, draw a line, us and them, insiders and outsiders, people who belong and people who don't belong. And this country is, uh, its history is of unbelonging people. That's, that's what our legacy is. We did it to the first people who were here and displaced them and, 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 and attempted to destroy them. They have survived, but at great cost. Uh, we, we've unbelonged humans from their own uh, sense of self, from their families, from their languages, in terms of the forced importation of, of labor, of humans from Africa. So citizen, you know, to, to sit on a kind of a legalistic high and mighty and say like, oh, only, that's only for citizens, you know, and, and to have the technical immigration status, which is uh, used to dehumanize so many people and you know, paint these negative pictures. Oh, immigrants do this and illegals, you know, we have these kind of language around that. I don't, I think there's limited value to citizen as legal noun versus this project that we're all in together democracy, self-government, deciding how we want to live together. That's what it is. You can call it <laughs> civics, you can call it is is how we're going to live together. And we've decided that we've got some ways that we can do that, but it's, it's our choice together. That's how we, we don't say, let the king tell me what to do. We had one of those, we dumped all this tea in the water. Really right. perfectly good tea. We're like, nah, we're good. No, we'll, we'll do it at the tea. But all right, but to your point, the weaponization of the word citizen is onerous to me on, I mean, not your description of that, but the actual action of doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, when my great grandparents and my grandparents came to this country, you showed up, you had an ID, hey, here's, here's where I'm from. And there was no, you know, it's like, oh, okay. It, you know, and you know, on my <clears throat> mother's side, they were Bogdanoviches. When they came over, they said, no, you're a Bogdan. And, you know, they, they changed it, but they pretty much let anybody in who showed up at, at the gates. Today, I go down to the, and I've covered border problems for the last 40 years, more or less. It's, it, it's restrictive. It's become, the idea of becoming part of this great American experiment has become uh, restrictive and it's become uh, something that while, and, and at the same time hypocritical because we'll say that someone is here illegally, but until like 1986 with the simpson Mazzoli Act, it was legal to hire them. It yeah. was illegal to be here. It was legal to hire them. <clears throat> and today, even if they hire you, the fines that they pay for catching companies hiring you is, is small, minuscule in comparison to hiring them and having to pay the right price for them and healthcare and benefits. Yeah. So it's always hypocrisy that drives that to me. And I think it negates the fact that we're all part of a bigger experiment. How do we make self-government work? Yeah. And so that's, that's what I'm more interested in that. How that's why we made a whole show, you know, uh, unauthorized transformation of the word citizen from noun to verb and called it <laughs> citizen. We didn't ask permission. We just did it, you know, uh, at great risk, at great peril. I'm not you know, there's some streets I can't walk down. Uh, because Especially if there's grammarians around, you're in trouble, baby. Some, some English teachers are upset with me. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's a risk I'm willing to take for we the people, Brian. So, so we think about it in uh, four simple ways. And then there's a whole show that explores it, obviously. But for our conversation, to citizen means number one, show up and participate. This is one of those active things. And there's a lot of us who have been trained to take it for granted. Oh, you're born in a place, you're a citizen, work done. Anyway, sports time, you know, something kind of simple. Right. Like so it's, it's, it's on us. It's we, the people, not them, the government. And the government is us, by the way. So it's kind of this reflective thing. If you're hating the government, you're kind of hating yourself in a democracy. Yeah. Uh, number two, you invest in relationships with others. We can't do this alone. And there's a lot of language we've absorbed, especially in the US, but broadly in the West, that it's it's hyper-individualistic. And you're supposed to work hard yourself. Work hard for your benefit. And if you make it, all that credit is due to you. And if you don't, all that blame is on your back too. 
It's the choices you make. It's a lot of, uh, it's excessive. I think it's ex an extremist view of individualism because we clearly need other people and nobody does anything by themselves. Right. People who proselytize this the most are taking advantage of hookups the most as well. Quite yeah. Well, I remember Newt Gingrich was one who talked about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but he was always good for a government handout. Absolutely. And we, we, we love law enforcement for like poor people, right? We love law enforcement for, for black people. We love law enforcement for brown folks at the board. We hate law enforcement for corporate executives. We hate it for real estate fraud. Right. We just we can't find police anywhere. We defund. We've already defunded the police, Brian, when it comes to the Securities and Exchange Commission and the IRS. Yeah. Too big right. to fail. Remember that? Too big to fail. Banks. Yeah. Well, and remember the history of the United States. If you go back to Teddy Roosevelt, who was a Republican and progressive before there were professional police departments, it was the sheriff who did most of the policing. But the sheriffs were elected. So they were very responsive to the people who elected them. Yeah. Whereas a professional police department was was not as responsible to the people that elected them and they became responsible to the corporations. And that's where we end up in trouble. I well, that property is not going to protect itself, Brian. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, so we do those things. We, we, we show up. We build relationships with other people. We understand what our power is in this democracy, which is well beyond voting. I think we have. That's where it starts. Not been served well by just limiting the idea to the vote is critical. People have died for it and fought for it. And there's so much more. And so how do we citizen? How do we use our power in all the ways? How do we spend our money? That's a, that's a way to show up as a citizen. What are you supporting? What are you not supporting with your dollar choices? What are you investing in or not investing in? Who are you spending time with? What news sources are you consuming? Are they even news sources? Um, yeah, are you being informed about the world around you or running away from the world around you? Um, and we make a commitment to do these things in the, in the citizen sense to benefit the many, the collective, not just ourselves. Because if we're feeling you know, into this relationship with other people, then when we do something that benefits the many, we gain from it too. And that individualism has use you know, it's it's not uh, to cut that totally out of the system, but we we're out of balance, and uh, th that thinking to just look out for yourself just serves a very few people. Well, that, remember what's really been the case throughout history. Remember yes. what the philosopher said: uh, the most selfish person is the one who takes care of everyone else first. There you go. Before we go to break, last question before the break: if there's one thing you could limit yourself to changing, and you could change it with a snap of the finger about the United States, what would that be? One thing? Oh, yeah. that is an interesting constraint. Then I think, I think I'll get a little technical here, but I think that would be how we, mm, only one, districting. D oh, gerrymandering. I think I would I think I would take districting out of the hands of elected officials altogether and shift it over to nonpartisan commissions, academics, urban planners, people who understand like borders that are reasonable, <laughs> and squiggly lines shaped like, you know, puking lizards. Right. <laughs> like an ink blot test. Yeah, this, this, I think that that rot is um, significantly close to the center of what ails us. There's so many things that are hovering around that center. But if I picked one, it'd be those district lines because um, those are not our real neighbors, the way we draw those. That's not the community we're a part of. Those are borders of manipulation uh, and they're used to separate us and, and keep us away from our power. So I don't like it. I get I basically get uh, new map makers. That's that's my <laughs> cartography for America. We call it that. You know, it's clearly a sexy brand. Get a lot of funding. I can see it trending on TikTok. <laughs> or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or anything. I don't know if we'd be allowed to trend on Facebook. Uh, it's a kind of an undemocratic platform now. I don't yeah, know. that's true. <laughs> With that, TikTok also China based. Yeah, there's challenges yeah. everywhere, Brian. No simple answers. Ugh. <laughs> With that thought, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
Well, time to pay the bills, folks. And this one I, I don't mind doing. If <laughs> Actually, I've actually used this. If this 2020 holiday season feels like it's been a long time, come and make it worth the wait with Omaha Steaks. Omaha Steaks makes the perfect gift for family and friends or to treat yourself. All shipped directly to your door. They offer everything you need to bring families together for a delicious holiday feast. Okay, or maybe not. Maybe just a delicious festival. Uh, their deluxe grillers assortment package includes a variety of entrees, sides, and desserts. Right now, you can get this mouth-watering package. I, I've never actually seen a mouth water. Oh, well, anyway, plus four free burgers and a free digital meat thermometer. And we all need a good meat thermometer. And exclusive price only available to uh, our listeners. So go to omahasteaks.com and enter the code question into the search bar. Get a jump on gift shopping with Omaha Steaks. You know, Omaha Steaks isn't just a steak. It, it's actually a, a lot of them. It's a fantastic gift and a safe way to share the joy of the season with Omaha Steaks. Guaranteed quality and safety with every order. Order the Deluxe Grillers Assortment Package today, and you'll receive four free Omaha Steak Burgers and a free digital meat thermometer. That's just a great straight line I won't use. When you go to omahasteaks.com and type question in the search bar, that's omahasteaks.com and type question. And if you need to spell it, it's Q-U-E-S-T-I-O-N in the search bar. And you'll shop for the best gourmet gifts of the season I, I like a good raw steak, so uh, enjoy it. It is a lot of fun. Hi, it's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us today, Baratuni Thurston. I'm going to, I'll screw your name up at least three times today. I apologize if I do. No I problem, Brian. No problem. <laughs> it's brain cream. Don't forget that. Okay. <laughs> Whatever you say, Brian. <laughs> so let's start with comedy. Uh, you and I share that, uh, having st stood up and done stand-up comedy uh, on a number of occasions. Um, what's the worst gig you ever played? I was doing an audition for a show in Texas. Audition for a TV show at a comedy club. I think it was near Dallas. I had driven there from Austin. Uh, it was Dallas or San Antonio. I'd have to double check my Google Maps surveillance history. Well, if you're in Austin, San Antonio is about an hour and a half and uh, south of you, and Dallas is about three and a half hours north of you. Yeah, so I, I really don't remember. I probably blocked it out because it was traumatic. Auditioning <laughs> for this show called Who's Got Jokes. It was kind of like Last Comic Standing, but like just all black people. And I had lost my voice um weeks before and was holding up signs to communicate to people to try to save my voice and i drove to do this thing and it did not go well uh at all i was not received uh in a positive fashion just crickets nobody got what i was saying i was doing all kinds of like high-minded news jokes and riffs on like new york times headlines and things and that crowd was not there for that and I had driven all this way and put my body through like more pain, even to be able to speak. And I bombed. It was, it was one of the worst. Well, we've all bombed my brother. <laughs> no, it happened one time. It never happened again. Yeah, as well. I feel so bad for people who've, who've not succeeded. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> That's a passive aggressive way of saying tough. I'm pretty damn good. Tough for them. But <laughs> yeah, that was the, one of the more dramatic failures of performance. I'll life. share mine briefly. I was doing a gig in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I did not, um, I did not check the club before I went up there and I was the middle act of three and I went up with a friend of mine who was headlining. And so we got up there and it turned out it was a restaurant that had turned itself into, you know, a, a comedy club on the weekends mm -hmm. and set up over a planter area in the corner of the room, a plywood stage that you had to either hop up or crawl up to. And it was in the, corner it was it was small and you don't need a lot of room and the light was fine <clears throat> but the door to the kitchen was right in front of the stage and it opened and closed yeah. frequently during the gig and i was like i yeah and anyway so let me make the point <laughs> and then the door would be in your face and yeah that was the end that was was a tough gig to do 
That sounds classy. I don't know what you're complaining about. You know, you got people coming trying to get close to you. you know, <laughs> it was the soup in my face. You never it have an empty brand room. of soup. Never have an empty room. Somebody's either coming to go use the bathroom. So yeah, that's, <laughs> oh, I like the ones where you go to clubs and you know you've got an audience down the left and down the right and a bar right in the middle. Yes, that's always yeah. a fun and, one. And if that bar has loud sports on, even better. Oh yeah, yeah that's. <laughs> There's so nothing done those gigs. for audience attention with a television. That's nice. What was a, uh, was there a joke you ever told that you were surprised at the uh, outcome uh, either for ill or for, or for good? Uh, I mean, cause you do bits and after a while, you know, you're, all right, this bit will usually get a laugh and you, you, and you can gauge your audience and know where about the audience is going to fall. Because mm -hmm. you get up and, you, you know, you take the temperature of the room in the beginning. Most of us do. Uh, but have you ever been surprised with it? You know, I know this one is going to go and then it doesn't. Or I know I know this won't do real well, but it did better than you thought. I am. This has happened. I'm having a hard time finding a particular incident. And especially because I don't do traditional stand up anymore. So I don't think in bits right. the way I used to. Yeah, right. Uh -huh. I do perform a lot. I talk a lot, clearly. But um, I think if there's a surprise, you know, actually, I did a couple of gigs during COVID, uh, like these Zoom comedy shows. And the um, this, the absurdity of, the, of COVID was people were so eager to connect over something that wasn't Doom. Um, and to have their experiences recognized. And I think I, I underestimated that a few times doing those gigs and doing stuff, even on Instagram Live, I used to do these weekly monologues that were pretty comedic, but also like heavily political, depending on what traumas we had been through as a nation that week. And uh, I remember telling the story of a little boy who I ran into on the street. I walked out my house and it was early COVID, maybe two months in, and he's just like peeing in the bushes right in the street. And it's like this wild child, like, like a white child. You know what I mean? Like a, it's like a, a, clean, a feral child, white <laughs> child, you know, <laughs> just pee. and I was like, my first response is what the hell <laughs> your parents? What is, and then I looked to my left and I saw the parents and they were just broken. They were just like broken people. They were just the, the weight of homeschooling and no playtime and being trapped in this house. And they didn't say anything. They didn't have to say anything. I was just like, this little boy can pee wherever he wants. You know what I, mean? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I can't add to your burden right now. Do what you gotta do. I'm, I'm just proud you got him to pee outside the house. You, know? That's <laughs> that, you don't know that he hadn't peed inside the house cool. earlier. But I just, the way they looked, this was a good thing. This was <laughs> well, thank God he's peeing outside. Yeah. So, but the parents in in the room, they just they let loose with such a sense of like recognition and relief, because they were at their wits end. Uh, you know, a lot of these parents didn't sign up to be full time at home trapped parents, right? right. There were there were terms and conditions on the license agreement when they agreed to be parents, like school would exist. Yeah, you right. know, other people would take these kids. <laughs> For and a all little bit anyway. They yeah. didn't. Yeah. So. Well, you know, earlier I asked you if there's one thing, that would be the one thing I would change if I could in this country, how we parent. Mm. I think that uh, parenting and a lack of it, what I've found over the years is my biggest concern is, <clears throat> and I'll, my generation was horrible at it, uh, parenting, but fathers, uh, boys need fathers. And uh, there's so many people that don't step up and aren't fathers to their kids. And that bothers me. Um, and I, I remember coaching football and I had a kid come up to me and started cursing at his mother in front of me. I said, boy, if you want to play football for me, <laughs> I ain't playing that shit. <laughs> and uh, the mother said, thanks. You know, I, I, I go, well, what do you think? Why, why aren't you doing that? Well, you know, and, and, you know, she had no father. There was no husband. And uh, she had six kids, which is, an, you know, I mean, hey, you know, as uh, Groucho Marx said when, you know, the, the woman said, I, you know, Groucho, I love my husband. And he said, lady, I love my cigar, but occasionally I take it out of my mouth. Um, you know, there's sometimes that you don't really need to have that many kids, but that's, that's just, uh, 
you know, some of what you're saying is, is uh, giving me some ideas. So like I grew up without a father. I did uh, too. And we, we turned out all right. You're doing pretty good for yourself, Brian. Yeah. And I never cursed at my mother. Um, Are you kidding? She would have slapped the taste I out of my mouth. Than that. And it wasn't just because she would have done this or that. There was a whole community of people who knew. And that community had there you go. enough grounding, uh, enough resources to be able to show up. And a lot of what I see happening is folks are stretched. You know, they're stretched to the breaking point. Uh, and they don't have some of the basics. We've, we've actually been doing our whole season. How can you, how can you parent if you're just trying to make, that's struggling. exactly right. Struggling. And, uh, and so folks have jobs, you know, technically, but they don't pay enough. They don't have the healthcare enough. These shifts are constantly shifting. Everybody's just very stressed out. So there's, there's always some degree of personal choice in these circumstances, but our personal choices are often limited by what's available. Well, and, and that's that's the, something we don't individually choose. That's something as a society we decide. We decide I don't disagree with that at all. I think I, we decide we're going to offer childcare. We decide we're going to offer healthcare, or we're going to make that an individual. You got to hustle harder thing and cobble together three point five jobs but, to try to patch you know some semblance of of care together. So it, it all intersects in a big messy way. But I, I see it, it related to those community choices, not simply, oh this person just wants six kids and doesn't have a husband around. No, I, and I, I'm sorry if I, I left you with that impression. That's yeah, not what my intent. Yeah. My, my, my impression is that it's always been a struggle of those who have against those who have not. Mm. And that um, society creates, when we go after the, <clears throat> when we tell you to go and hustle, if we say, hey, you know, it's up to you, go out and hustle, you need to work two jobs yeah, or three jobs. Well, let's take a look at the guy who doesn't work that much at all and is pulling in, you know, how, how many millions of dollars a year because he sits on a board of directors and does nothing except show up for a board meeting once in a blue moon. Why don't we look at the pre people who own the production methods of production? Now, when I say that, people begin to scream, oh, you're a socialist. Um, but I don't think that's the point. I think the point is they that those who have keep those who have not in a state of perpetual angst yeah. so that they keep making money. That my friend is uh, dead on. And I think based on how you said that and how we arrived here, you, anybody listening to this, check out the second season of how to citizen. Cause it's all about capitalism and money and how, you know, you and I already talked about what some of what it means to show up and citizen as a verb, that's all very hard to do when we can't pay the rent, <laughs> when right. the rent is too damn high. And so, and in some ways we've designed a system that makes it hard for us to self-govern because we're so stressed out financially. Uh, well, how, right. are you, how are you gonna go to that community meeting when your shifts keep moving around and you can't find childcare? And I blame, I blame my profession for part of this because we have not educated the American public Comedians? You blame comedians? <laughs> Journal, no, oh. <laughs> journalists, <laughs> reporters. <laughs> comedians get the get the blame for everything. Damn yeah. it! That's, <laughs> uh, next, next in line are the musicians. No, but uh, <laughs> but journalists. We we have, and part of that is also part of the problem of capitalism. Good journalism is uh, is works contrary to capitalism. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be a good journalist. You cannot be, it cannot be tied to capitalism. 80% of what you see reader here, when I first got into this business was run by about 24 companies. Today, 90 to 95% of what you see reader here are run by five companies. Yeah. There are 1300 communities in the United States that are media deserts. There are no reporting uh, or reporters. There's no media there. Yeah. And what used to be, you know, and, and here's a, a real sad fact. There are twice the number of people on this planet is on the day that I was born and half the number of reporters. So it's hard to keep people informed that these things are happening. And by the way, it's the government who has, you know, when Donald Trump screams fake news, um, he's right church, wrong pew. There's a problem in the press, but mm -hmm. the government created it. And it started with Nixon and it was Reagan who, uh, 
allowed, uh, you know, got rid of the fairness doctrine, which allowed news silos. You were talking earlier about Fox News and how you stay in the, you know, if you only watch Fox News, you're only getting a certain amount of the information. Well, those are media silos and those news silos have been created. They were created by Ronald Reagan and Roger Ailes. And that has created a problem that leads us to where we are now. And, and you know, it used to be that CEOs were making what, 10 or 15% more than the richest, uh, than, than the highest paid employees. And now it's what, 500 times more? Something? Oh, the, the multiple, yeah, we, yeah. The last number I saw, the CEOs make 320 times. Yeah, 320 times. Lowest paid, I thought it was. Um, and it used to not be that way. But listen, Brian, we can all agree that CEOs are working a thousand times harder today. They are, um, the yachts time, you know, really adds up. And those board meetings you talked about, plus, you know, PowerPoint has come a long way since the 1980s and the font choices they have to make on a daily basis, like a daily basis. So what goes in the PDF, what goes in the keynote version, what goes in the PowerPoint version, that's clearly worth at least 100 times what the well, yeah, it's not just Times New Roman and Bodani Bold anymore. By no, God, no, no. we have Wingdings, Roboto, like yeah. things are going crazy out here. Yeah. <laughs> Those you poor damn executive CEOs. leadership to point. <laughs> the but seriously, <laughs> um, one of the scariest parts of that is I don't think people are well aware of that. I think, and uh, I remember talking to Al Sharpton, and this was I was interviewing him years ago, and he was saying, <laughs> "You look at me," and he said. Well, what you don't understand is because your forefathers owned my forefathers. And I said, well, pal, my, my, my people didn't get here until after the turn of the century. We didn't own shit. We came here because the Turks were after us <laughs> and we, we were being enslaved by them. But he had a point. But the point I was making, as I said, sometimes I feel like that they keep us fighting amongst ourselves because the poor black person and the poor white person are suffering sometimes the same problem from the same problem mm -hmm. and they never get to see that they have more in common than they have difference that their different their commonalities are, are more common than their differences i just had this conversation with heather mcgee um on how to citizen it's the second episode of the season she wrote this great book called the sum of us sum and she powerfully makes the point that we've been sold this fake story this bill of goods that if one person gets something another person has to lose and so you pit people against each other. It's classic divide and conquer. And we've done that racially, especially in this country. We've done that economically. Uh, the good news is there's another way. And uh. we, can make, we can make more money together. We can take care of each other better together. Like more people can benefit. And we it doesn't mean that uh, rich people are going to suffer. You know what I mean? Right. I might have to sell off a yacht. You know, they got the oh my god, end. oh my god, at the highest end. But it's 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 not so much about what what I think the Republican Party's gotten very good at, and sort of the conservative wing is making the suffering of the extremely wealthy feel like the suffering of millions of people. And that's yeah, and that's not, you know Cicero, the philosopher, uh, you know Roman philosopher Cicero said that one of the biggest mistakes, the constant mistakes of humanity. One of the six mistakes that we always make is that for us to profit, someone else must suffer. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way. That's that's a really dangerous story. That's very, people identify with it. It feels kind of right and natural. And if that's all you hear, it's the only thing you know. Uh, well, but that, that can be used to destroy us. And that's the argument I always have with, with those who believe, you know, and I've talked to, you know, a lot of these people who believe that you know, it's it, when you're talking about Black Lives Matter, or if you talk about any uh, any movement that's trying to uh, bring about the increasing of their civil rights or the recognition of their civil rights, mm -hmm. there are those who believe that it's the de at their detriment. So, it, you know, there are white people out there who believe that if, uh, if what they're doing is they're taking away my rights. And I go, no, what they're doing is leveling the playing field and taking away your privilege. You, you, you get things that, I mean, you can get stopped by a cop. And as the Richard Pryor joke implied, you don't, you're not worried about getting shot or choked to death. But if you're a black teenager or a Latino teenager and, and wrong or, or Asian or, or anything else, and you're caught in the wrong place at the wrong time by the wrong cop, you're, you have problems. And they don't, I don't think they recognize or see that. 
there's a lot of people who have that opinion, have that position. And I think it's in part because they derive their own self-esteem and their own relative self-worth from somebody else having less. It's, it's the classic trade in America. It's the trade that we made through our immigration policy. You will always be better than the black people. That was what LBJ said. Remember? Everybody steps over them. You know, the, yeah. the Polish people, you step over the black people, the Jewish people, Arab people, like you step over them. You right. Don't be that. And as long as you agree, as long as you sign this metaphorical document that you two will step on those people, then we'll help lift you up. You can join the club. You'll still be below us, but you'll be above <laughs> But you, you want to be like us, and this is how you be like us. Yeah, like, yeah. We'll let so you. We, we'll let you into the club to wait our tables. And I think uh, the other thing that happens with people who are afraid of losing their rights is because they've only known how to thrive by being a part of a group that's taken rights from others. So they assume that others will do the same to them if given the chance. Yeah, I, I agree. That's hundred percent accurate. All I know is how to beat people. So if I stop beating you, you're going to beat me. Right. So, you know, I might have a different way to approach things, <laughs> but your faith in humanity is so small because your experience of humanity is so small. Well, you know, remember there's 7 billion of us on this planet. What could we accomplish if we work together rather than working apart? Yeah, we could go to, we could make Pluto a planet again right? <laughs> and then go there. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back with a couple other questions. Uh, it's just ask the question. I am your host, Brian Caraman. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. Again, that's at JATQ Podcast. Hi, it's Just Ask the Question. I forgot the title of the damn show. I am your host, Brian Karam, <laughs> and we're speaking with Baratundi Thurston. And I, I guess we'll finish up today talking about some of the news of the day. Uh, Sister Liz Cheney, <laughs> she got kicked out of the uh, Republican leadership today. What are your thoughts on that? I am. This is, this is going to be really interesting for me to say out of my mouth. I am grateful for Liz Cheney. There, I said it. I got it out of my system. It didn't come naturally because I remember the Liz Cheney that threw her own sister under the bus to score points with the right wing and decline marriage equality to her fellow Americans, her fellow family member. And that was an ugly thing to witness. And it hurt me and I'm not even her sister. So I was like, this person has knives in her that she is willing to wield against her own family for political gain. Keep me out of the room with Liz Cheney. Damn, like father, like daughter, worse in some ways. Because even the father was like, yo, you tripping. That's your sister. <laughs> and when Dick Cheney's asking for sympathy and empathy and love, you've maybe overstepped. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so that, is, that is a long way of saying what she is doing right now in just saying the truth is necessary. And I'm appreciative of it because too few people in one of our two political parties is unwilling to do that because they're prisoners to lies and they have decided that there is profit in those lies and they will sacrifice all the rest of us for their own political gain because they're desperate and they're weak and they claim freedom and bang this drum of independence, but they've lashed themselves to a loser, a literal loser, a raving madman running around in his underwear on his property who cannot accept that he lost. And rather than shun him and cut him off, they're trying to cut America off. And it's dangerous because they have a lot of power. Um, and so this January 6th thing that we went through is still going. We're still in an insurrection moment. And we got too many politicians, elected officials siding with insurrectionists. That is not how you strengthen a democracy. That's how you kill it. So I'm, I'm grateful that Liz Cheney exists. I sincerely wish her the best. And I like what I've seen her saying, like she is standing firm in the constitution, in the basic rule of law and all those basic blocks. Uh, and it just saddens me that she stands so seemingly alone. Do you have hope or are you living in trepidation for our democracy? Both. It's called hopedation and it's both. There's no way 
that I can look at what we've been through, Donald Trump should never have become president of the United States. He is embarrassingly, woefully unqualified to lead any kind of organization. He's a serial fraudster and everybody knows it. And if he were an immigrant trying to get into this country, we would pre-deport him. We would build a wall so he could never get in because he's not the type of person that we're proud of. No parent is proud of that. No parent wants that for their own children, but they're willing to inflict that on other people's children. That's dirty, okay. man. That's dirty. So a country that allows him to become president and a party that slowly, steadily creates a lane for him to begin with, because it ain't start with him, coddles him, aids and abets him and undermining all of our stuff. And when they themselves, they try to... They try to lynch the vice president of the United States, Brian. I was there. They try to lynch. I was the there. I heard it. And they denied it afterwards. They but, but we So a party that looks the other way with that is not what you've been around as long as I have. You remember this language from Middle East struggles in the 90s. Partner for peace. Yep. The Republican Party is no longer a partner for peace or democracy in the United States of America based on their actions. I'm not even talking about rhetoric, just what they're doing. So my 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 trepidation is well-founded because we haven't had this ever. No. Ever. And we've had so much dirt. And we have never had lynch the vice president chanted with a Confederate flag waving inside the halls of the U.S. Capitol. So that that's even being questioned as something that, well, maybe I don't know it's we're we're beyond thin ice they're we're trying to water. they're we're trying to deny that that happened yeah and so, trying to tell me what i saw i did not see but but so that that is classic gaslighting that is classic propaganda psychological operations it's not unique you know it, my hope is tied up in the same thing there's nothing genetically different about people who identify as republican Right. There's there's something mildly nutritionally different. I think they probably eat a little less arugula than me. You know, that might lead to some different political behaviors. But overall, we're all just human beings. And we're all capable of beauty and of ugly. And unfortunately for all of us, this party is embracing the ugly. And they're walking down this path, which leads to Russia, which leads to Rwanda, which leads to Germany in the 30s where millions and millions of people believe shit that ain't true and then commit violence in the name of those lies. That's real tricky. My hope lies in the fact that there's still more of us who don't believe that yep. than them. They're loud, but they're not, they're not mighty. They're not mighty. Uh, that more people are aware of this than have been. I have some hope in the, in the Liz Cheney's of the world because I've been rolling with a crew of people who've seen this coming from since before it happened. And we're like, I told you so. Yeah. And we could stop there, but didn't. Those same people powered a coalition that got this dude out of office. Self-satisfaction is never enough. You got to keep working. But my hope is that more people who have called themselves Republican will start to recognize the self-destruction in this path. I, I was talking to some business people lately. Business people, you know, they, they like to try to pretend they're not political and ignore all the lobbying money they fund to distort our democracy. And I'm like, do you think that a government and a nation that no longer respects the rule of law that will let a mob storm the U.S. Capitol will protect your property rights? Do you think a society that allows these sort of widespread violent lies to run around unfettered will protect your intellectual property, will respect your, your building, your employees, your rights, your money. It, no, you're not safe. You, you're temporarily safe unless you pick the right side here, which is always the people, man. It's democracy. So I have hope that and seeing these business people start to wake up, get off the sidelines. That, there's hope in that. I've always known the people who are called activists, they will, they've always shown up. The black people in the streets have always been in the streets from the beginning, reminding right. America, this is what you said you are. But when, when the people with power start to recognize that their power is temporary and that it's dangerous to coddle up to this deception, these lies. I hope that that prevails. And I think it will. I know it can. Um, I feel it must. Well, amen. I hope you're right. My fear is not that we become Germany in the 30s. 
My fear is this nation has a great deal of power and influence over other nations of the, of the world. And my fear, my hope is your hope. My fear is the extinction of the human species because that is, <clears throat> that's, uh, if you take a long look at it, and I hope I'm not reactionary, I hope I'm, I'm level-headed, but if we can't learn to get along together and thrive together, what's the alternative? They're showing you that they want to dominate and rule, but dominate and rule over what? If you cleave us in, into little pieces, what's left? Yeah. Good it's, question. That's, and that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the big fear I have. And having covered that administration and been in that place for the last five years, um, it's frightening to me how we've, we've managed to step down the ladder <clears throat> to the point where to be understood, we're screaming and threatening each other. And that doesn't portend, uh, uh, for the betterment of humankind and the deceptions that Donald Trump has engaged in and the deceptions of the uh, GOP. And to your point, it's not the insurrection isn't over with, with what they've done to Liz Cheney, they've thrown their lot in the GOP has thrown their lot in with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that that's the Weimarness of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's no longer, there was a, li a limited period of time where people could convince themselves it's just the, it's just the Trump people, right? It's just, oh, it's just this exceptional figure. The rot has spread. It's, it's, it's metastasized, this cancer, through the, the preponderance of the Republican Party. The reasonable people are in the vast minority. They're struggling for air. And, uh, and I just, you know, it's what's, what's so twisted to me and ironic in a really sad way this is the freedom party you know this is the individual rights party this is the independence people and they've tied themselves to an authoritarian yeah and and tried to convince us that the authoritarian is for freedom yeah so that's 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 dangerous that's very dangerous well on that uplifting note this has been really great <laughs> it's been fun uh, I'm gonna that's, drink it. Those are, that's my line <laughs> like a good comedian you steal the best lines god damn it <laughs> listen I appreciate you being here I, I I'd love to have you back uh, to continue the conversation I think it was fascinating Me too. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I did I did this is real cool and thanks for having me it's good to meet you and I wonder, you can I ask you one last question? Sure, anything. So you spent, you know, 4,000 um, years covering the Trump White House. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, what what did you do as a detox after? Like, did you sit in a mud bath for a week <laughs> or just smoke sage or like... Weed, good weed, like, lots of weed. Uh, <laughs> how did you purify yourself uh, after such toxicity? Um, I, I do a couple of things to detox from that. I, um, I play in a band. I don't do stand-up comedy anymore, but I get out and try to have as much fun as possible. And I'm very grounded and very lucky that, uh, I married a, a, a more sane woman than I am. And she puts up with me for 37 years. And I try to keep, uh, I, what I tried to do during the, uh, Bush, I'm sorry, during the Bush years, <laughs> during the Trump years was uh, to keep my head on straight as to um, what it was all about. And I often tried to just ask questions that I thought the general public wanted to know. And never, ever do you buy in, and you can't do this, you can never buy into the fact that you're part of the in club, in crowd. Mm -hmm. And they all try to sell you on that. They all try to get you to play the access game. And uh, I don't do it. So it, it, it was a little easier for me then um, because I, I never tried to play that game and wouldn't want to do it. But music. Music sets you free. Amen, I'm brother. I'm so glad to hear it. Can, yeah. can I plug my website, Brian? Please plug anything you want. Go for it. Thank you so much. Uh, HowToCitizen.com. People can find the podcast. And uh, newsletter.baratunde.com. Got a swanky new email list. Very excited about new fonts, Brian. CEO, Your CEO worked on that, huh? Fonts. Now, I'm the CEO, so that's that's uh, <laughs> that's, that's how that works. You but sit on the board. 
Uh, yep, I'm. I am the board as well, and I get. A, I get a board check. I get a CEO check. I'm also writing the check, and it's coming from my bank, so it's a little circular. Whatever it makes me feel good, and that's there you what go. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, I, yeah. I I would recommend that they pick up your your book. Um, yeah, I, do I'm that. How to be black. Uh, yeah, and uh, and I I a, excellent read so far. I hope to get through it over the weekend. Um, yeah. And I appreciate you being here. Hold on, stick around, but we'll we'll we'll. Uh, <laughs> Thank everyone for being here next uh, next week on Just Ask the Question. Uh, Trump's fixer, Michael Cohen, will be joining us once again. So thanks, and we'll catch you next time.